Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more and they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, Sakuya here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my host. And I know for a lot of you that are looking at this right now from when we did the uh, part one of <laughs> the part one of Fidel, Fidel Castro. Cast. Oh my God. We Guys. had technical difficulties. Like James, he was editing it. His computer kept dying. Um, the lighting was all wrong. It just basically kept... the video got screwed. Okay. You can listen to the audio. The audio was fine, and that's still up as like, you know, the actual episode that you can hear but video wise the whole thing is is screwed there and i apologize it's literally comes after the week that i posted the thing saying oh yeah hey every week this is gonna be up and then literally the first week goes by and the next one there's a problem well anyway we're gonna be working on getting new lighting new cameras everything and also just so everyone is on the same page this is the last week that we're gonna have the episode go out on friday Next week, there'll be a bonus episode from YouTube going out on the podcast on Friday. On Monday of the following week, that is when you will have your brand new podcast episode because we're going to be switching all of the uploads over to Mondays. Correct. We we should have actually done this a long time ago. Like but last we didn't. year. <laughs> Literally last year. This We're like 100 episodes in on the podcast here at this point. We started December of 2021. And... Now it's approaching December of 2023. I mean, we're saying this now at the end of September, but still, it's getting really close. And we definitely should have done this a long time ago. And now we're finally fixing that wrong. Okay. Also, guys, Peru goes live next Friday. The Peru trip goes live. There's going to be amazing activities. We're going to be hiking. Machu Picchu, Rainbow Mountain. There's like a local market cooking class involved. Make sure to check it out. Mark your calendars and we'll put the link in the description that will notify you if you sign up with your email when the trip goes live, because I'm expecting it to confirm pretty quickly because everyone was so excited in their surveys. Not to mention it's the cheapest one that we managed to make here yet. Exactly. And it's next July. So essentially, once you put your deposit, you don't have to worry about paying it until next July. So exactly. I'm 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 pretty hyped for Peru. That was like my trip that I really want to (laughs) do. Oh, yeah, I know. And we're going to be planning a lot more of these in the future as more people sign up with everything. But speaking of adventure and traveling and maybe visiting 
unknown destinations, though I guess in this case, the one that we're talking about is definitely more of a positive sense versus raiding and pillaging and driving millions of people from their homes in a massive plague of humanity that will wash across the world, destroying things. I don't know where you're going with this. Attila the Hun. Like literally I- the title <laughs> of what this video is, of what it's supposed to be going out, like of the podcast episode is Attila. And like the, the entire point, like the arguably one of the single greatest causes of a human leading to mass migration ever the in Huns. human history. Literally the Huns. Is that the Huns from Milan? Do you say Huns? No, no, they use oh. the name. And in general, here's one of the confusing things that a lot of people really mess up when it comes to history. The Huns, right? So we, we collectively refer to them, but we don't know hardly jack about them. The Huns? No, like- no, I'm serious. We, we actually don't. We don't know their language. We don't know any of that. We know that they spoke other languages, like in the case of Gothic or other stuff, which, yeah, a, bu- a bunch of people probably get confused immediately off the beginning, like the Ostrogoths, the Visigoths, etc. Gothic is a language that people would have been speaking because that's a whole tribal group and people. And they're one of the many peoples, similar to the, um, was the Alamani, the Alandi, the, the Vandals, like all these different groups that were driven in front of them as they moved into the territory because they came seemingly out of nowhere across the steppe and just destroyed everything in front of them, sending all these peoples ahead of them. It's because we didn't get down to business to defeat the Huns. Oh my God. I'm sorry. Listen, you can't do a podcast episode on the Huns. I know it's the wrong ones, but you can't do an episode without me referencing Mulan. I know, I know. But in the case of Mulan, those are Mongols, not Huns. They just call them the Huns, even though relatively like Shur Khan is basically Attila in that. You, you could say that he is essentially Attila because that's as close as you can probably imagine in terms of personality of a guy who just wanted to conquer for the sake of conquering just because he could. Is this the guy with the flaming animals? Wait, wait, hold on. When you say the flaming, no, you're thinking of Tamerlane. Um, You're thinking of Timur, which is an episode. I remember I did that as a patron exclusive actually a while back. He's the guy who set camels on fire to to scare elephants. Okay, well, tell me about Attila. Okay, so for those of you who are confused, who may be listening to this for the first time, or I don't know how you possibly have not at least heard the name Attila before. Attila the Hun is the leader of an ancient nomadic people known as the Huns, right? Obviously, but we're talking about the Huns coming. And this was the Hunnic Empire that he established. The name that we're talking about is something that is synonymous with terror. Really, he was so terrifying in history. His army swept through and destroyed so many things that he was called a number of different names, right? The Terror of the Steps. Literally one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the Scrooge of God. Which I have to say right now, in terms of a name, if you could be given any kind of name that is symbolic of just how terrifying you are to be called the scratch or is like the scourge of God. You like he was literally seen as one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. He was war. He was destruction incarnate. So he just killed everyone. Oh, basically, basically he, he was ruin made manifest or at least according to the ancient historians whose shit he was constantly burning down. Question. If you compare Attila the Hun to Genghis Khan, Genghis Khan, yeah, who is worse? Um, arguably Genghis Khan. And I say that because um, his Mongol empire lasted much longer and conquered much more than what the Huns did. But the Mongols were to China what the Huns were to Rome. That is, that is true, because we're talking about something that is over a thousand years apart. 
because the Huns would come about in the 400s AD, whereas the Mongols and their empire, that was like 1276, if I recall correctly. So like almost a thousand years apart. Very, very big difference. And so if we're going to be telling about this, we're going to be talking about the story. We need to start with very obviously the beginning and the thing that we know the least about. Literally the beginning. Oh, I know that's going to sound dumb right now. And I know, Gabby, you're laughing at me, but it's like you may wonder, oh, how is this bad? What do you mean? Well, where was he born? Who was his mother? Where was he from? We don't know. What language did we he don't grow know. up speaking? We don't know. Was he a very, very calm baby or was he always this violent? Um, I'm guessing he was probably always violent, but that's just nothing more than a guess because genuinely speaking, we seriously don't know. Like we don't, we don't know where he was born. We don't know what his actual name was. Like we call him Attila. Everyone knows the name Attila the Hun, but that's probably more than anything a title. Like literally that, that, that's just what he would have been referred to as rather than his actual name. His mother's name is sometimes given as Hung Sung Vladisurf, but her name is not actually known. Like we, we, this name is even something that a lot of people think is, oh, that was just made up. We know that his father's name was Munsuk, and his uncle was Ruglia, also known as Rua or Ruga, depending on the source that you're looking at, and that this guy was king of the Huns. Like, we know that, right? And as a young man, Attila and his older brother, which was another guy by the name of Bleda, though another name that he also has, because again, the sources are very confusing, is Buddha. They were taught a whole bunch of stuff right? Growing up, you naturally learned violence as a hunt. You learned archery. You learned how to care for horses. You learned how to fight. You learned how to do all of this. But in addition to fighting and all these other more violent pursuits, you would also learn a variety of other things. You would be taught Latin. Uh, they were taught Gothic. They were taught all these other languages that would allow them to do business with the Romans as the Goths, because those were two of the largest language groups that they would have been communicating with as they fought and or traded with and or did everything else with. Really, historians have no idea what exactly to say regarding Attila's early years. Some claim that there's no point in even me saying any of this right now, right? Some people claim that we know literally nothing about his early life, not even his birth name, and so we can't really infer anything about it. We just know what happened with what came later. That's it. Because Attila, as an existence, may be something that is only based on his later accomplishments. And that's it. So whether Regilia had sons to succeed him or whatever happened, we don't know. And Munzuk seems to have died very early on when the boys were younger. So at that point, it appears that either you had Bleda or Attila that was going to be Regilia's heir and succeed him as king. So the education that they received at that time was, you know, focused on warfare. It was, uh, it was focused on language. It was focused on learning all these things that they would need for leadership. And both boys are thought, again, mind you, thought, nothing in here is going to be definitive, to have been present at the councils, the negotiations, all the stuff that they would have been needing to know and understand in order to take charge. And the thing is, we know of Attila the Hunt. We know of the Hunnic Empire. But even before Attila was ever a thing, the Hunnic Empire was still kind of a thing. The Huns were still an incredible fighting force, although this is something that would get even more intense under his rule specifically. These were men from the steppes who were expert horsemen. They were, according to a bunch of the ancient reports, able to use their horses to actually fight for them. Like these, these, are, these are almost ponies, right? 
but they would fight with the ferocity of war dogs, biting their opponents and kicking them. How do they train the horses to bite? That's a good question, Gabby. Guess what? What? Oh, you don't know. I don't know. Okay. Well. We literally don't. That's the confusing thing (laughs) about all of this. And that's the thing that pisses me off over the course of trying to do research for this is how many things it's like, oh, may have been, possibly could have, uh, theoretically, if. I'm like, oh my God, would you please, please give me a somewhat definitive answer when I'm trying to do this, okay? I have a whole presentation to give here. But that's, yeah, that, that's pretty much what life was like over the course of creating this. So a bunch of the information that you hear, don't take it as absolute. Take it as this is most likely what we think has been the case because this is what people wrote down in history. And can you guess who was doing the writing for a lot of that, Gabby? His enemies. His enemies. Fantastic. Yes. And as we know, when your enemies write history about you, they're going to try to make you look as bad as possible. Oh, absolutely. That's I what... mean, I do the same when I'm writing about you. <laughs> So, okay. okay. A little bit of bias, you know, a little <laughs> bit, a tad. Exactly. So, okay, right. The Huns. When Regula goes and dies in, like on campaign against Constantinople, which is the, the big capital city of the Eastern Roman Empire at this time, because the, the land has been divided into two emperors. It is a, um, th- like the Roman Empire, the system is a diarchy. So it's split into two managerial halves. You have the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire, each one with an emperor, and they're both emperors in their own right of their land because they couldn't, they simply couldn't control or manage all of it under one guy. And so when he is campaigning against Constantinople, he dies in the year 433 AD, and leadership then passes over to Attila and Bleda. And the brothers actually rule jointly for a time. They, they are, they're co-kings, if you will, of the Huns. They rule their own kind of regions, their own population, and they, are, they, they have these deals that they oftentimes are fulfilling with the Eastern Roman Empire, which is a very complex relationship. I'm going to say this right now because it was like, um, how do I put this? The Huns were subjects, mercenaries, enemies, landlords and tenants all wrapped up into one massive, messy, stupid bow. It really is. So here's, here's what would happen, right? So the, the Eastern Empire would, had formally paid the Huns as mercenaries to fight the other tribes beyond the land's borders, like the Goths, the Vandals, the, like all these different groups. They're paying the Huns as mercenaries to fight those tribes that are harassing Rome's borders. But now they're having to pay the Huns to not invade them. And that's what it was. It's like a a mafia. They were straight with the horseman mafia. That's what they were. So they, 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 they stepped up in the first place to let a little bit of a protection racket. What and, you know, are and, the, you doing? and the, and the, and the protecting the people, you know, they're the protecting them. But if you don't, if you don't, if you don't help them, then you're going to be swimming in the, in the, um, not, not with the fishes, but with the horse in the, in the trough, you're going to be in the trough being fed to the horses. I am so sorry to any Italian podcast listeners. Um, great job, Steve. <laughs> that was just deeply offensive. Maybe, but you know what? It was more offensive for the Italians, or I say the Romans of the time, they were getting murdered a lot because that's what happened here. Because, no, seriously, they were having to pay the Huns to stop them from invading. And guess what? What? It didn't work. 
They invaded anyway? Oh no, so many times, so okay. many times. Hear me out, why Why do they keep paying then? Because they're gonna pay and get invaded anyway. They might as well keep their money and run. Okay, so think about it like this. Um, one of the things that they would do as an example is, remember how your aunt described how things were like in, a, like in Haiti? Yeah. Where she would pay protection money like one day to some gangs that had come in there to harass her. And then the very next day, more gang members would show up, but they would say that they're part of a rival gang. Yeah, they were from a different one. Yeah, so she had to pay it twice. And she would have to do that like every single day instead of once a week. Did Is that what happened? Basically, that's what they would end up doing. So they'd have rival Hun groups? Yeah, well, they would have that. And in addition to that, they would just say, ah, oh, well, screw it, you didn't pay enough. Or they would invent some reason that you would have. they would come in and raid. Or it's like, oh, we, we weren't raiding. That was just some unruly tribesmen that we don't control. Smart. Yeah, it was a massive mess. And they would do anything they could to weaken the Romans at this time. So it's, it's one of those really complex things. Because Attila and Bleda together had brokered a treaty called the Treaty of Margus with Rome in 439 AD. And this treaty would continue the precedent of the Romans paying off the Huns in terms for peace, which would more or less be a constant thing that the Romans had to deal with, with the relations with their Huns until Attila's death, constantly. And an agreement with the Huns and the Romans had already been brokered four years earlier in 435 by the Roman general called Flavius Aetus who had lived among the Huns as a hostage in his youth. He spoke their language. He employed them to his advantage in the various different power struggles with the empire and, you know, used them as mercenaries, which is one of the things happened. And the Treaty of Margus would expand on this treaty that he had had as the Romans promised to do several things. They would pay them a certain amount of money. They would return all Hun refugees who had fled into Roman territories and they would not enter into any kind of pacts or treaties or agreements with the enemies of the Huns. They would establish fair trading rights and, of course, of course, make the annual payment of 700 pounds of gold directly to Attila and Bleda. And this comes from a, a historian by the name of, uh, of Kelly who had put this in here. And I, I had to draw from like eight different sources of historians from all this that they would do. And it's, it gets conflicting at times. It could have been 700. It could have even been 800. There were varying different accounts that said how much gold was being paid. And for their part, the Huns promised to not attack Rome and to simultaneously not make alliances with Rome's enemies and to defend the frontier for them. Literally, mafia protection money. That's straight up what it was. Listen, economies need a certain, like they need, they need, they need something to keep their economy running. I don't fault them. Yeah. If they had the manpower, it's kill or be killed. Oh yeah, no. And they did. And uh, guess, guess what happened? Did they invade anyway? Oh yeah. So here's the big kicker. So with this treaty concluded, okay. The Romans are like, hey, we don't need all of these really expensive soldiers constantly maintaining the forts here on this side of the empire where the Huns are because we have paid the Huns. They're now the protection force. We don't need to worry about it. So we can withdraw those forces and put them in other parts of the empire that really need the defense. And the Huns, after a little bit of time, look across and be like, hey, um... <laughs> there's no one there anymore. Should we do something about this? No, 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 no it's okay. We, 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 we honored a treaty. It's a treaty. It's a treaty. We're not going to do anything. Guess what happened? 
they did something. They did something. Of course they did something. Listen, they basically were welcoming them in with open arms. No, straight up. Straight up. You can't just leave your fort undefended. I mean, what were they to do? No, they didn't do it immediately, right? Right. So they at least honored it for a little bit of time. So after the Marcus Treaty, the Huns go and they turn their attention east and they start warring against the Sassanid Empire. The Sassanid is the successor to the Parthian Empire. It's the new big eastern empire that has arisen out of like um, like it's the Zoroastrian state that would arise in the uh, in the east of what we would think of as ancient Persia. Right. The Sassanid Empire was the new Persia. And so the Huns go back there and start fighting against them because of the wealth of the Silk Road, but they end up getting repelled and driven back to their home. And then they look at things, they're like, well, crap, we've just been beaten. And with the Roman troops that once guarded the border, now deployed to places like Sicily and others, the Huns were like, hey, um, this is going to be really easy pickings. And so as historians would write, as soon as Attila and Bleda received reliable intelligence that the fleet had left for Sicily, they opened their Danube offensive, meaning across the Danube River, like where it goes over there in the Balkans. They're like, hey, there's no one there. Um, let's go get them. Now, of course, they didn't say that the reason why they're there is for plunder. No, no, no. They, the reason that they cited that they were able to open up hostilities is not because this was undefended territory that they were going to be able to loot and pillage and burn to the ground. No, it was because the Romans didn't honor their part of the treaty. How? So they claimed, right, that Hunnic refugees had not been given back to them, which they wouldn't be able to prove everyone that was in the first place. Because when we say Hunnic refugees, that's not Huns. It is all of the varying peoples that the Huns had conquered and driven out of their lands. So if the Huns moved into a territory and like that village got burned to the ground and its inhabitants slaughtered and half of them turned to slavery, but a small percentage of them escaped over the Roman border to flee to safety, by law, the Romans were required to give those people back to the Huns. What were they going to do with them? Either just kill them or enslave them. For most in that case would be enslave them and be able to sell them off in order to make more money or to use them for labor. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Yeah, like that's straight up. That's exactly what would happen. Yeah, welcome to history. That's exactly what they would have done. And so they claimed that A, a bunch of people had not been given back. And worse yet, 
that there was a Roman bishop, because remember, it's Christianity at this time in the Roman Empire, that the, uh, a Christian bishop had made a trip into Hunnic territory and had desecrated a number of Hunnic graves and stolen a bunch of their grave goods. And they wanted that bishop turned over to them in order to face trial and, well, I guess trial, more so face punishment. So, Theodosius, the emperor, sends his general, Flavius Aspar, to go and try to negotiate with Attila and Bleda. But it doesn't work. Because Attila goes and shows Aspar all of these recently disturbed graves, but there's literally no way to tell a whose graves these were or who had disturbed them, what could have been potentially taken from them, and there's literally no proof of any crime that has occurred whatsoever. So Aspar is like, well, no, I'm not going to give the bishop over to the Huns. And he then claimed, I have no knowledge of any Hunnic refugees that were hiding from Attila and blood on Roman soil. Naturally, there was literally nothing that he could do to prove anything otherwise. To give in to the Huns would be just to allow the Huns to completely bully them with no evidence whatsoever. And so since Aspar could not comply with him, Attila and Bleda confirmed that negotiations had reached a stalemate, and therefore the Huns had every right to invade. Ironically enough, the refugees in question that we're talking about here, as I said, were, they were people who had fled from the Huns, and they did know there were a number of them that were still in this territory. Like, they, they did know that they were there. It's just the process of trying to round them up and get all of them is a little bit of a hassle. And you're not necessarily going to be able to get all of them unless you have some that are, you know, rabble rousers or anything like that. But there were definitely individuals that, potentially speaking, could have been turned against the Huns to rise up in rebellion. That was true. But let's be honest, even if they were to go round all these people up, they did think it was worth the hassle. They thought that there was danger of an invasion. They would have invaded anyway. Yeah. They didn't really need the refugees. They just wanted a reason to attack. Exactly. Oh, of course they did. So It's like when you tell your dog, like, sit, and you put a bowl in front of him, and then the dog is, like, kind of, like, crawling towards it, and you're like, no, and he's like, hmm. And then you walk away for two seconds, and he starts, like, he barks at something, and then... You go to check what he's barking at. He's like, yeah, it's basically that. Oh, and, you, and you want to hear something really ironic with all this? Not even just with the with the um, um, with like the refugees, that bishop that we were talking about before. So even though we don't really have any proof necessarily that he did any of the stuff at the graves, it probably would have been better if they had given him over anyway, because when the Huns would attack, that bishop would end up betraying the Romans and giving over the city of Margus to the Huns. So if they had given up the bishop anyway, they could have lost a bishop, but saved an entire freaking city potentially. It um, might have just been better if they had done so in the first place. Did the bishop know that they stood up for him? Like, why did he? I don't know. Maybe he knew the Romans were going to lose. So he was like, uh, best way to live. Yeah. So Give anyway, up. what then happens is that considering the treaty broken, Attila mobilizes for war. Aspar heads back to Constantinople in the summer of 441. And then at that time, Attila and Bleda drive their armies over the border regions and start sacking cities left and right all through the province of uh, Ill uh, Illyricum, right? This is a region that in terms of trade, all across like the um all across the the Balkans is an extremely valuable series of trade centers and that is what the Huns want they want loot furthermore they then violate the treaty of Margus by riding onto the city and destroying it again with the help of the bishop who opened the gates for them and so Theodosius II 
then declares the treaty broken and calls back all of his armies from the provinces that had been, you know, their troops had been distributed through it because they were able to because of the treaty with the Huns and they have to send them back to try and stop the Hun rampage. Attila and Bleda then respond by launching a full-scale invasion, sacking and destroying every single Roman village, settlement, and city within 20 miles of the Roman capital of Constantinople. Every single place that they touch gets burned to the freaking ground. So when you say you think of the Roman Empire a lot, do you think of this? Oh, this is one of the things. This is where people cry. Why? Because of like the ideas of the fall of Rome and everything. This is... This is one of the worst time periods for them. I the mean, to be fair, everything Rome, for the past couple hundred years has been bad, pretty well, much. Rome overexpanded. Well, they yeah. really did. They put themselves really, they spread themselves thin. Listen, if we talk, if we made an entire podcast episode about the fall of the Roman Empire and talked about how it decayed over time, there are so many different things that we touch upon here. They literally couldn't keep, uh, as you can see here, they didn't have the troops to spread out and defend the land that they owned. It oh, was yeah. obviously their oversight. Yeah, the moment that Rome was on the defensive was really the beginning of the end because it had no offensive wars that it could launch to pay for its own troops and its army. So the moment that it was on the defensive, it just really couldn't pay for that same kind of quality or support or anything that it previously had. Plus with the, you know, the, the limitations of the system over time and the strengthening of their opponents. Either way, the city of Nisus, the birthplace of Roman Emperor Constantine the Great, was razed to the ground, and it was not going to be built for another century afterwards. The Huns had learned a lot over the years about Roman siege warfare from their time where, guess what, guess what, they were mercenaries of Rome, so they studied their tactics and knew exactly how to do things. They weren't just in the steppes anymore, they knew how to actually fight siege warfare for settled cities. And so they were able to put all of that to use and wipe entire cities, such as Nysus, completely off the map. So here's the thing. If you have a force that you trained because they were a mercenary for you, but they're no longer a mercenary, kill them. Yeah, no, they, 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 they didn't do that. They didn't do that. And the thing is, the Huns at the time, technically speaking, were mercenaries. But it was like, God, I don't even know how to begin to Kill them. That. Now they know your tactics. Now they know your secrets. Now they know the literal layout of your cities. Yeah. It's not only that, not only do they know everything about the cities, but simultaneously, the reason it works so well is because all of this was completely unexpected. Theodosius was so confident that the Huns was going, like that they were going to honor the treaty, that he refused to listen to any one of his advisors that was telling him, hey, no, we need to be prepared as a just in case. So pretty much all defenses at that time had been abandoned before the Hunnic onslaught. I know. I look at your face right now, just like pure judgment. And that is, yeah, it was bad. This cannot be the Roman Empire that you guys are like losing your minds over. I know. I like know. this is for real. I know. This is it. I know. And I don't it, want to root for the Huns, but I, I don't like to root for the losing team. Yeah, I know. But hey, don't worry. It gets better. while also simultaneously <laughs> getting worse. Um, but that's going to require some clarification. So the thing is, Theodosius, by this point, the Huns have poured in through the border. They're not there to conquer and take everything, though, necessarily, because they don't have, I guess, the organization for it at the time. But Theodosius knows that he's defeated. But he doesn't want to admit that everything has been lost completely. So instead of letting the Huns continue to fight and just take out the entire empire, he sues for peace, right? And the Huns accept. They accept peace. But the amount of money 
that Rome had to pay the I Huns. I knew it was going there. Yes, because of course, they weren't there to just take the land in the first place. They wanted money. They wanted all their loot and goods and everything. They were, it was a step nomadic people. That's what they wanted. But the, the amount that they had to pay tripled. So if you were saying that it was 700 pounds of gold, now it was 2,100 pounds of gold a year. That's reasonable. Oh, considering how much they were doing here, you know, that was insane. Well, not reasonable since Rome already didn't have enough money to pay their troops. No, that's just it. They didn't. So They didn't. And that means, for here's the thing, for every pound of gold that you have to pay, that is less gold that you have to be able to pay your own troops, which means that you're going to be weaker the next time around. I mean, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I don't really know how they thought this was going to go. At that point, if I were Rome, I personally would have just... I'd have left, like, well, meet up somewhere else, pals. Oh, absolutely. So the whole thing is just a massive embarrassment. It's, it's awful for them. And there's a quote that I had that I pulled from here that said, <clears throat> Theodosius II of the Eastern Empire and Valentinian III of the Western both paid him tribute as a bribe to peace, disguising it among their people as payments for services rendered by a client king. In other words, what that, what that means and what their historians would write is that this was such an embarrassing thing that the way that the Romans had to disguise it is not, we're not paying gold to an enemy that defeated us. No, 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 no. This is, this is payment for a, a client king that is a client of Rome for defending us. These are mercenary payments, totally not anything else. What, literally, is just mafia payments. It's literally just mafia protection money that they're having to disguise as like, Merc payments. But it's not just that. What happened last time they paid these mafia mercenary payments? Even if they were, they attacked them. Yeah. So do they do it again? Because mm. man, that would just be so great. Oh man. See, 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 this is where it gets real weird. Are you ready for this this whole turn in the story? I have not been prepared for any of this, but I'm enjoying so it. So that was that was the the east, right? We're heading west now. So after all the stuff across the Danube, Attila and Bleda, they take their troops back to the great Hungarian plain, where Bleda disappears. The brother Bleda? The brother, yeah. like Because they remember they were co-rulers of the Hennig Empire. The most reliable account that we have from this is a Roman historical record from Precious that says that three years after the offensive, Bleda, king of the Huns, was assassinated as a result of the plot of his brother Attila. That's what I was thinking. We don't know. That's what they wrote about it, but other scholars have suggested that he may have died while in campaign or disease or that something happened. We don't know, but in either way, it doesn't really matter. By the year 445, Attila was the only leader of the Huns, and from this, the most powerful military leader in all of Europe. And the thing is, not only was he so incredibly powerful, but he knew. He knew that he was powerful, and what he was able to do against the Romans was... I mean, he didn't see them as a threat at all. He saw them as feeble. And so starting in the year 446 or 447, he again invades the region of Moisa, which is in like the, um, it's like in the Balkans, destroying over 70 different cities, taking any of the su uh, survivors from this as slaves and sends the loot back to his stronghold at the city of Buda, which was possibly modern day Budapest in Hungary because that's where he is based out of at this time. Though that claim is something that is contested. We don't know if that is the case, but it's theoretically in this region. So this is what he does to the East again, shortly after all that peace gets signed. Of course. And now thinking that he is untouchable and there is nothing that he can, like that nothing that anyone can do to stop him. He instead turns from the East to West. 
And the reason he goes west is because he receives a very weird but interesting offer. So this, is it a girl? Oh, it's a girl. It straight up sounds like something out of a um, out of a not not even a fantasy novel. It sounds like something straight out of a uh, a drama. I only knew that because while you were writing it, I looked at your notes when um, it was sitting on the bed. <laughs> okay, okay, fair, fair enough, fair enough. Okay, so get this. Remember how the other emperor, like the emperor of the Western side, was that Valentinian guy? Yes. Okay. So Valentinian's sister, Honoria, she was about to be married. But guess what? She didn't want to be married. So did she send a letter to Attila? <laughs> she sends a letter to Attila. Was she like, I'll I marry you? you? No, well, no, no, not necessarily. Sort of. Maybe. It's implied. Here's the thing. She is about to be arranged married to a Roman senator, and she doesn't want this, right? So she sends a letter to Attila, along with her engagement ring that she'd received, asking for his help. Although she never necessarily stated that she wanted to marry him, Attila interpreted this message, because remember, he speaks Latin. He completely understands this. He's looking at this and goes, huh, I've just been received a proposal by the, by the sister of the emperor of Rome. So he accepts her marriage proposal and sends back a message saying, hey, I accept. And as the dowry that I am to be paid uh, for marrying you, I request one half of the Western Roman Empire. And when Valentinian discovers what has happened, he's like, no, holy crap, no, uh-uh, uh-uh, God, no, no, please, no. He immediately sends a message to Attila saying, God, hey, listen, I'm sorry, there's been some big misunderstanding. Um, this was a mistake. There was no proposal. There's no marriage. There's no dowry. There's nothing to be negotiated. And Attila's like, nah. Nah, man. Nah, I got the message. I got the letter. I know what was promised to me. And he mobilizes his entire freaking army to march on Rome and claim the prize that he has been offered. Yeah, this is kind of romantic. Not going to lie. I'm going to write a romance novel based on this. Does it not straight up sound like a drama? Like a it really sounds like one. some convoluted plot that is just driven for. It straight up sounds like a theatrical play. Listen, I know he was murderous, but I can fix him. You know, that's all I can think of right now. Oh, um, man. But also, what was she thinking? I, I, I understand know. not wanting to be arranged married, but you're going to message Attila the freaking hun? I don't know. Surely there were some other steps that uh, could have been taken. You think so? Instead, she reached out to the step. Yeah, get it? Get it? The step nomad? The step nomad? Yeah. 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 Very proud of that one here. But, uh, if I don't, I don't see some uh, some step puns. Oh, God, wait, no. People are going to be saying like step bro and other stuff in the comment section. I know exactly that they're going to do that right now. What are you doing, step no man? <laughs> and he's literally just like invading. Oh he's literally just like invading Rome. Oh, no. When you leave your back door open in the step nomad. <laughs> Guys, we're so sorry. Um, <laughs> We have had no childcare, so we've been like working. Oh my god! And I've been doing school and wrangling a four-year-old. So, um, if this is getting unhinged, that oh is my why. God. Okay. <laughs> what are you doing, Step Nomad? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, Gabby. That is beautiful. Okay. All right. All right. Continuing on. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? (laughs) You get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the hosts of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser-known figures. For instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective Perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. So he mobilizes his army. And in around 451 AD, he begins his conquest with an army that is around 200,000 men. Though it may have been more. Some historians say that it was around like 300,000. Some say 400,000. Some even say half a million. And as these forces move westwards, they easily take Gallia Belgica, which is, that is the region, like it's a Roman province at the time, but that's modern day Belgium, essentially. And they start ravaging and burning down all the crap within the land. The only time that Attila has ever been turned back at this point is from the Sassanids, and he is unbeatable, it seems. He is slaughtering everything as he moves in. He is seen as invincible. There is nothing that anyone can do to stop him, and people are terrified. This is really where he, uh, of course, has that reputation as being the, like, the scourge of God. And the reputation that the Huns have for brutality, and I'm going to say this right now, indiscriminate slaughter was very well known because they didn't give a fuck. They were going to murder each and every single thing that they came across just by virtue of the fact that an enemy killed now is an enemy that's not going to fight back, and an enemy killed now is simultaneously a chance that someone else is not going to fight you because they're too afraid. So that's what they would do, much in the same way as we talked about Hong, like Mongol tactics before. So people were fleeing before him, taking every single thing that they possibly could from their houses, every animal, every, everything that they could have to try and drive away as quickly as they could. There was a Roman writer by the name of Amineus Marcellinus who wrote of the Huns in his History of Rome, and it says, and I quote, The nation of the Huns surpass all other barbarians in wildness of life. And though the Huns do just bear the likeness of men of a very ugly pattern, which I gotta say, like putting, they are, every single account that you see of other writers that are describing the Huns describe them as short, hairy, flat-faced men that are are just love violence and drinking and nothing else. Like, they pretty much describe them like angry dwarves. Yeah, but when you say flat-faced, right? 
How everyone's face is kind of flat. Yeah, no, no. But when they're talking about this for a flat face, it's usually something more associated with like Asiatic, like across the steps and moving over into Asia. The face isn't as pronounced going forward. It's a little bit flatter. So oh, you mean like how your nose is long as hell? You're going to cry in the car. Okay, yeah, yeah. So when they talk about this, have you ever seen in representations, and this is going to sound weird, is a little bit of a tidbit, but do you ever see when um, they, they depict like foreigners in anime as an example? So if you see someone who's represented as European or American, they're typically depicted as having a bigger nose. And also blonde hair. Yeah, typically blonde hair, big nose. Like I literally, it will be a black girl. And they will give her blonde hair. Anime is wild, yo. Oh, it's funny when that happens. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, again, a number of them are given pink. So it's, to be fair, it just varies. But as he would continue to write, they are so little advanced in civilization that they make no use of fire or any kind of relish in preparation for their food, but feed upon roots that they find in the field and the half-raw flesh of any sort of animal. I say half raw because they give it a kind of cooking by placing it between their own thighs and the backs of their horses, and when attacked, they will sometimes engage in regular battle. Then going into the fight in order of columns, they fill the air with very discordant cries. More often, however, they fight in no regular order of battle, but by being extremely swift and sudden in their movements, they disperse and then rapidly come together in loose array, spread havoc over the vast plains, and flying over the rampart, they pillage the camp of their enemy almost before he has become aware of their approach. It must be owned that they are most terrible warriors because they fight at a distance, with missile weapons having sharpened bones admirably fastened to their shaft. When in close combat with swords, they fight without regard to their own safety, and while their enemy is intent upon parrying the thrust of their swords, they throw a net over him, so to entangle his limbs that he loses all power of walking and riding. They describe them as basically a giant army of bandits. Like, it is a bunch of short, hairy, strong, violent, drunk bandits. I kid you not. The Hun army was essentially one massive, enormous cavalry unit that would strike anyone that they came across very quickly, almost without warning, and they wouldn't offer any kind of mercenary or terms beforehand. They would just move as quickly as they could, relying on shock and mobility, and just crush everything. This makes a lot of sense, because when I was researching the Gladius episode of the um, YouTube channel, uh -huh. they were talking about how Rome was having a lot of issues Towards the end of the Roman Empire, obviously, because yep. they weren't utilizing cavalry. They, they weren't utilizing it initially. And then all of a sudden, when they were so big and all their enemies were so much faster, they were like, oh, man, we need cavalry. And it was really, really important that they had cavalry because Correct. their empire was so expansive. But they were like really slow on the upswing with the cavalry. So like by the time they got it, everyone else had better tactics. Oh, exactly. It's just it wasn't something that was able to work from. It's one of the reasons why the East, like the East Roman Empire, largely developed uh, uh, like cavalry and archer tactics. One of the reasons why they did that. The West would adopt some things, but not nearly to the same degree as, um, a, a, as others. So when Attila would fight, he didn't, he would not necessarily throw his troops into battle just to attack, right? They would keep themselves kind of at a distance, uh, not launching into melee, not into sustained combat. He tried to approach his enemy instead using the terrain to hide his troops. And then all of a sudden, as soon as they were within arrow range, launch as many attacks as they could while one rank would fire at high angles to cause their defenders, like they would have to go and raise their shield. The, what the other troops would be, do behind them is wait for a second and then fire because all the troops raise their shields to catch the arrows. Oh, guess what happens? Now arrows are going almost 
laterally. Wait, was that the term? Perpendicular, right? So go to protect your head, get punched in the gut. That's pretty much everything that they did. That's pretty much my one fighting move. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then once, uh, once enough casualties had occurred and the enemy was heavily disorganized, then the Huns would actually close ranks and move in to finish off any of the survivors. Really, it was such a brutal and effective tactic, mind you, that no general was eager to come up against them. Like the Huns were unbeatable in the West, it seems. The big difficulty that the Huns had faced, remember they got turned back by the Sassanids? Yeah. The Parthians, the Persians, like these different people, the Sassanids, they employed somewhat similar tactics. They had a long history of mounted archers that would be able to go up against them simultaneously in regions that were almost desert and or mountains. So they knew the terrain, they knew how to utilize this against them, and they could fight them almost on, you know, at somewhat equal terms. The West couldn't do that. It was a completely different ballgame for that, for something that they had not really encountered before that was attacking them. The Romans had encountered it centuries earlier when they fought the Parthians because they had moved east, but this was the east coming west. That was something that they were not really familiar with. So really, no one wanted to engage with Attila. No one wanted to attack him. No one wanted to deal with him. And it's almost like every single place that they appeared was out of nowhere, and then they would melt away, disappearing just like that, And behind them, all they left was a massive trail of destruction and massacred citizens and bodies everywhere. And then they would just ride on, leaving all that behind them on fire. And they did this again and again and again in every settlement that they came across. Is the old-timey version of cool guys don't look at explosions, like, you know what I'm talking about? Was it just like, cool guys don't look at burning villages? Yeah. Ride through, light everything on fire, kill anyone you see, move on. That's it. That's exactly what they would do. A little bit upsetting, but whatever gets you off. Yep. And so they're pushing further and further and further into into territory, right? They take Trier, they take Metz, which is heading along like the Germanic border. And then this is pretty much without opposition. They massacre everyone inside. And then they finally, finally get met in battle by the combined forces of the Romans under Flavius Aetus, who understands Hunnic strategy. And he is combining his forces with the Visigoths under Theodoric I on the Catalonian plains. And this engagement is known as the Battle of the Catalonian Fields or the Battle of the Chalons. I know this one. You know this one. I know anything that's super bloody. Oh, oh God. Okay, that's awesome. Okay. Well, no, that's to be fair, because this is one of the things that has been described as like one of the bloodiest military conflicts that has ever occurred in history. And simultaneously, this was the first time that Attila had been stopped in the West. I only knew of it because I was looking up really bad battles in history um, to ask you, would you rather? (laughs) Oh, God. This came up. It got beaten out by something else that Rome did. No, fair enough. Fair enough. Oh, Battle of Tuttenberg Forest, I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah, no, because the whole thing was a bloody and awful slaughter. It was. So the way that it worked is that the Romans were on the high ground, right? And they had managed to succeed to push the Huns back. And in their confusion, the Huns had to be driven back into the fight by Attila. And during the hand-to-hand combat that would break out, King Theodoric of the Visigoths ended up getting killed. But you would normally think in this scenario that when your king gets killed, this causes everyone to panic and run away. No, the Visigoths were so pissed off. When That's this what happened. I thought would happen. Yeah. In most cases, it 
causes people's morale to break because the king is dead. But, what about vengeance? Oh, Revenge. In, and in their case for the Goths, it did. It pissed them off so badly that they rushed the Huns and the Huns ended up getting driven back to their camp. And that was the end of the day. And as night fell, the Huns had to station their own defenses. And for several days, they couldn't really do anything. They didn't move from their encampment. They sent out their archers in like little harassing parties to try and keep the Romans back. But the Huns were never, or, or the Romans were never able to move in and take the Hunnic camp. This then pissed off the Visigoths, who ended up allowing Attila to withdraw his army from the battlefield because a bunch of their forces passed this pretty much deserted. And he left with all of his loot that he had stolen from all those villages that he burned to the ground, all of his men, and he just left. The Romans didn't chase after him either. And the thing about this is that it's not great. It was a victory, the Romans, technically speaking, it was. But then simultaneously, Attila had managed to escape pretty much intact. But the very least, he was no longer invincible. He could be beaten. And this was the first time that that had happened since he had moved west. So you think, okay, is he done? Is he going to go home? Is he going to do this? I'm assuming he gives up, right? Like maybe he said, you know what? I got all this booty. I got everything I want. Everyone's kind of still afraid Wrong. of me. Wrong. Okay. It's Attila the freaking Hun. No. Well. In fact, he doesn't even want to go back for booty. He still is citing that marriage that he wants. Oh, he never got the girl, man. No, I'd he go never back got the girl. too. He never got the girl. I'd go back too. He'd go back too. So listen, he was promised. <laughs> a he has an engagement ring. Okay. I'd go back too. Okay. So his invasion gets stopped. He's defeated. And the Romans have claimed victory. But they think that he's just going to go home and stop now. And he's going to go harass someone else. You know, he's going to deal with all that. No. A year later, 452, he returns and invades Italy itself. Does he get the girl? Right? No, no, no. So here, here's the funny thing. This is where it's weird. Just as when he had been invading, going into, uh, like into Belgium and moving down into Gaul, which is modern-day France, he starts destroying and burning everything to the ground. He completely destroys the city of Achillea, which not only does he destroy it, unlike the other one, Nassius, that we talked about before, this never comes back. To this day, we do not actually know where Achillea is because it was completely wiped off the map, like down to its very foundation, gone, completely. So that's gone. And then the people of Italy, as the Gauls before them, were so terrified of the Hunnic invasion. But unlike the year before, there was no army to stop them. What did they do to their army? Well, they were sent off to other regions. Remember what we talked about before? You had all this stuff of all this death and destruction. So in order to stop potential bandits or other powers from rising in, the army now had to move to other parts of the empire to, defect, to protect things. They thought that the Huns were going to go away. But guess what? The Huns don't freaking go away. Because that's just what just keeps coming back. It's like a cockroach. You know, you like yeah. try to kill it and you really can't unless you squash it. Yes. Attila was the syphilis of Europe. Yes. I don't know. Any. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. Fair um, enough. Fair enough. Fair James, enough. cut that out. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. 
Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. So whole populations end up fleeing their cities and villages for safer regions. And in fact, this is one of the key ways that Venice ends up becoming a city because it's really it's really funny, right? There's this whole tribe that existed in that region that you know how uh, Venice is like its own little island off of Italy and that it, it's filled with uh, marshland and lagoons and everything. And that's what the city is built on. Yeah. So it was one of the most annoying aspects when the Romans had to fight them in the first place hundreds of years earlier when they were conquering it. And now the exact same thing was going to happen for the, the Huns because the Roman citizens ended up fleeing largely from their territory around there, heading over to this territory and then taking refuge inside of Venice. And that's where it kind of sprang up at this time and became more prominent as like a trade center because all these people had to move there and reestablish their lives. So that's one of the interesting little details about that. The, the, the weird detail about this, or I guess not weird detail, but the understandable thing is that it was the right move because we're talking about a step nomad. You can't use like little ponies to invade a freaking lagoon. It does not work very well. So they move on from there and start attacking other territory, except they stop. That's like the weird thing. Past this point, the Huns stop at the Po River. And no one knows why. There's multiple explanations as to why this happened. Like, I'm not going to say that we don't know literally anything. Um, considering all the fact that uh, there, everything had been burned to the ground in Italy and all these other places, there was a famine that was ongoing for the past two years. And so quite possibly Attila, who used a mobile force that would move around all the time feeding off the land, there was no food to feed the land off. Like off of. Before you give all the logical reasons why he would stop. Oh my God, what, what are you going to say Could now? it be that he found another girl? Oh my God. And therefore he had no reason to pursue Honoraria. Is that her name? Honoria, yes. Honor- yeah, the, the, he, he found somebody else. Okay. Listen, she was too much trouble. <laughs> he just found someone new. Okay, you know what? Weirdly enough, you're not 
entirely wrong because he does end up getting married. See? But that's not- I think that is. But no, but no, but Mm. it's not, that's not what we're talking about here. Okay, that happens very shortly afterwards, all right? And it's for completely different, I don't know. Okay, I'll explain it. I'm stumbling now at this point because I'm trying to figure out how to explain this properly when you technically are speaking correct, but also not. I'm right. So it could have been famine. It could have been plague. It could be literally any number of things that occurred at this time. Um, There was also a suggestion that he not go and attack Rome because the previous time that Rome had been sacked under the Goths, uh, this then resulted in the death of the ruler, Ulrich, who had done this before. And it was like a punishment for the gods for attacking such a prestigious city that he shouldn't do it. But that whole thing for a superstitious region reason is kind of BS, in my opinion. More than likely, it's due to either plague or famine. Because again, mobile cavalry force, if you have no food that you can pick off the land, there's nothing you can really do to move in and attack. This is the exact same reason as to why Napoleon failed in his invasion of Russia in the first place is because there was no supplies. As he invaded, the Russians burned everything in front of them so they couldn't get food to be able to supply their army. So there's that. Either way, all we know is that Valentinian would go and send Pope Leo I, who was one of the early popes, as a kind of delegate to seek terms with Attila. But we don't know any details about what happened there. All that we know is that after the meeting with Leo I and his delegates, Attila went back home. He went back to Hungary. And whether or not he remembered Honoria and the dowry or any of that stuff that caused him to invade Italy in the first place, we don't know. But he would actually get married afterwards to a new young wife named uh, Lydico. He celebrated the wedding with a very large amount of food and alcohol. And that next morning he was dead. He was found dead beside his new young wife. He had burst a blood vessel and the blood in his night, in the night, had gone down into his throat and choked him to death. That can happen? Yes, it can. So for those people that die of like alcoholism, like for those who binge drink, if he had spent basically his entire life binge drinking potentially, it's just one of the things that he apparently happened. Now, we don't know this is the case, right? This is what the accounts say. As with other famous people like Alexander the Great or or others, there are alternative suggestions that say that he potentially could have been poisoned, but a number of people say that this first thing of him getting a blood, like a blood vessel bursting and him choking on his own blood, that that is the most likely answer. He really went out with a bang, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. Some say that it was his new wife that assassinated him. Uh, Some say that it was a poisoned drink or something. We don't know. Either way, we do know he died. That's really it. So the entire army falls into grief over the loss of their leader and his horsemen go wild. Not like burning everything to the ground around the country, mind you. No, instead, they cover their faces in blood and ride slowly around in a steady circle around their tent, which holds his body in mourning. And so according to the Roman historian by the name of Priscus Apanium, the men of the army cut their long hair and slashed their cheeks so that instead of tears, the men would mourn with blood of men. Like that was the idea, that they didn't want women to be crying over him. They cut their face so that they would cry tears of blood because that, that is what he deserved. If I put that in my will. Okay. Yeah. Are you going to make sure people do it? I'll leave like a decent- I'm not making people cut themselves for you, Gabby. For the money that I'm leaving in my will. Oh my God. Oh my God. 
It's like the equivalent of when people used to pay mourners in history. I love that was an actual position was that you could be a professional mourner at a at a funeral for a rich guy and they would pay you to do that. That was a thing. That's where I'm getting my inspiration from. But I want it to be more hardcore. Oh, my God. But it has to be only men also. Only men. Only Only men. men. Got it. Got it. Got it. Like really hot ones. I don't know. And so just make it a thing. (laughs) After everyone. <laughs> well, you know what? Well, after everyone is done crying all the blood and everything that you've demanded here for the funeral, just like what they did, the next day is followed by something that is the exact opposite. It's celebration and feasting and lamenting all this other stuff. You know, like they're celebrating Attila's life effectively. And that night, way beyond anything from Rome, Attila was buried. But here's where it gets a little bit weird. According to the legend, of what happens. His body gets encased in three different coffins with the one that is like the innermost, the one where his actual body rests inside of. That one is covered in gold. The second one outside of it, covered in silver. And the one outside of that, covered in iron. We don't know if that's the case, but that's how the legend goes. And the gold and the silver would symbolize all the plunder that he had seized, while the iron was, you know, like the weapons of war that he had utilized melted down in order to be able to cover his coffin. And so according to the legend, a river was then diverted and Attila was buried inside of it, like in the bed of the river, covered in stones, buried deep within it. And then once he was buried, the people who had buried him were killed and the river was re-diverted back. So it fell back into its natural path. Why were the people who buried him killed? So that they could never find it. Like... So anyone that would have had knowledge of the grave was killed so that that way his grave would never be disturbed. Okay, we just need to find the river and then... A bunch of Chinese emperors and everything did that too. Like that, that we, is a common how thing. How many rivers were there? We could just figure that out easy. Well, you see, that, that's, that's the weird thing. And I'll, I'll kind of explain this because it was this whole interesting detail. When I was writing the podcast episode, that was where my thing ended. And I was trying to figure out like, man... I, I don't know if that is where I should really end this thing. So I was going and doing more research about it, right? So the gist is, is that following his funeral, the empire gets divided amongst all of his different children who f- fight each other for the greatest share, which is exactly what happens. You know, every single time that that happens in history here, where things get divided amongst children for an empire that they end up fighting each other. And when this is a step nomadic empire, which is literally built upon blood conquest and the like might makes right effectively. Listen, I might be an awful person, but if I were in this specific situation, I'm not saying me now, I'm saying me then in that time period, like 470 CE, I would have just like killed off the extras, chosen the one that I want to be like, maybe not. Actually, no, no, you don't kill them off. You don't kill them off. You send them away to live with random people and they're not allowed to be told that they're royalty. You only take them back to the palace if the one that you really wanted to be royalty dies. That's it. That is the solution. Like a modified version of the Ottoman system. No, literally, you send them off with people you trust who will give them the training that they need in case you need them. But the one that you want to be ruler, you keep that one. The others, they don't know who they are. A complex system. I'm sure that there's a lot of things that could go wrong with it, but it's like better than some of the other things that they would do. It's better than every single decent empire falling as soon as one great leader dies. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the case of Step Nomads, that's literally everything that happened is their the way that their empires work were always rise up very quickly, fall very quickly, rise up quickly again, fall again. They, they 
if empires are a system of rising and falling, because remember how you described something for how like how like hormones could be at different times. Um, their whole thing was like this constantly. <laughs> okay. That, I'm not going to tell people that I have like hormonal issues. I'm just going to say I am like a step nomadic empire. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if you guys are everything to the fucking ground. If you guys are <laughs> listening to this episode, you didn't see the action, but it was it was fun. <laughs> so his empire literally lasts 16 more years, essentially. I just don't even last 16 more years. It gets divided amongst all of his children, and literally within the next decade and a half, gone. Wiped out from everybody. Hunnic no. Empire ceased to exist. He it rose rapidly under him. And literally within a decade of him being dead, gone. I That's hate it. when we do these because you watch them build it. You watch the chaos that they obviously should not have caused, but they did it anyway. Yep. And then boom, it just evaporates. It really makes you think that even if you go down in history, everything you work for might just be poof, you know? Yep. And so doing further research on this, trying to find anything. Remember how we talked about his tomb? And how it was buried in that in, in the river, so to speak. Did they find it? Well, the people claim they did. So in, in March, uh, back in the year 2014, there was a report that came out that Attila's tomb had been found. That it was discovered in Budapest, Hungary, which is now considered to be part of the capital of Buda. Like from that's where that comes from. Which, of course, everyone is talking about this when it, when it happens. It seems like it's a really big deal. But no one is able to actually confirm it it's like people say no that this was it was a hoax instead like it wasn't actually real but this is like the first claim that comes out scholars have been skeptical behind the story that he was buried in a river but that it, it is possible and i say that it's possible because that is something that has happened before when remember how there was the whole thing for the mesopotamian king gilgamesh like the epic of gilgamesh etc so th that is an individual that was said to have been buried in a river in the Euphrates. And people thought, oh, no, that's just a myth. There's no way that actually happened. But back in the year 2003, there was a German team of archaeologists that apparently found the tomb of Gilgamesh precisely where the ancient text said that it was. And after some excavations and through uh, uh, like modern tests and technology and all this other stuff that they were doing around to figure it out using like magnets, they were able to reveal garden enclosures, buildings, structures, all these different things that were described in the Epic of Gilgamesh, including the king's tomb. Like they straight up found it. Seriously, like according to legend, Gilgamesh was buried at the bottom of the Euphrates when the water parted upon his death. Much like Attila's time, Alric I was said to have been buried beneath the waters of the Bucento River in Italy after his death in 410, and the waters were diverted and then sent back over in order to cover the bed. And according to the ancient sources regarding his funeral, Attila was also buried beneath the river that was diverted to cover the tomb. And so it's happened before. Like we have the story, like what happened with Ulrich. They have they, the whole thing with Gilgamesh. It is something that has happened. But we don't know it yet. His tomb hasn't actually been found. They don't know. Could it still be the case? Could it still be out there? Could it still be discovered? Yeah. Much in the same way as with Cleopatra or any of the others, there are still a whole bunch of tombs that have not yet been discovered that we could discover, we could find. There's we don't know. 104 days of summer vacation. Oh, God. I know what we're going to do today. <laughs>
Like, here's the thing. Attila, to this day, is still one of the most interesting and crazy and badass figures in ancient history. Wild, insane, evil in some cases, wonderful and awesome in others. It's just, he's still a name that is associated with being an unstoppable, indescribable force. And there is really no other way that you could get the nickname of the Scourge of God. Or one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, yeah. Are there four? I thought it was like six, It was five? disease, famine, war, and... Oh, God, why am I forgetting it? Death? Hold on. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm pretty sure death was just straight up I feel like one of them. Death was just implied in every one of those. No, because some of the others were suffering. So hold on, hold on. I'm gonna look this up right now. Okay. Death, famine, war, and conquest. That's what it was. And I think he was described as the red horse. Let's see. Attila was a Let's see. It is said that the Romans believed Attila to be one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The four horsemen are said to represent conquest, famine, death, and war. And at one time is expansion into the empire. The Eastern Romans were also facing plagues and famines. So since, yeah, since they were also facing that, they thought that he was, well, well would he be conquest or would he be war? I think he'd be war because he wasn't really conquering at most points. He was just killing everyone. That's fair. You know, he didn't, in most of that territory, he didn't take that over. He just literally came in to burn everything to the freaking ground. So he was war. Well, either way, that is the end of that. Everyone, thank you very much for listening. This has been Stakui and Gabby with the History of Everything podcast. Before we end things here today, it is time to do our listener story of the week. So their family history. I just grabbed one. <laughs> okay. First of all, feel free to use my username. Secondly, I'm not a writer, so this will be a short entry, but I love telling my family's story. Oh, I don't think it lists here the name. No, wait, literally the next line after that, it lists the name. Okay. My name is Blair Buckingham, and my parents both have really cool ancestors. On my dad's side, I'm related to the Duke of Buckingham, specifically John Sheffield. John Fitch built the main structure by contract for 7,000 pounds. Buckingham House remained the property of the Dukes of Buckingham until 1762, when George III acquired the whole site as a private family residence for his wife, Queen Charlotte, and their children. Aren't the, the, the whole thing here? That yeah. You yeah, you, you saw Queen Charlotte. The totally, totally accurate thing. It's so accurate, you guys. On my mom's side is Black Douglas. James Douglas was a Scottish knight and feudal lord from 1286 to 1330, and he was awesome. Here's a few of the things he did. He was one of the chief commanders during the wars of Scottish independence. He led the capture of the powerful fortress of Roxburgh. And finally, the best quote from the Black Douglas that I live by to this day is, care shouldn't start in the emergency room. Very interesting. Hey, some pretty cool stuff here, Blair. And for anyone who has any of their own family histories or stories or any things that they want to send in, feel free to send it in to us here. You can find all the links to do all of that down in the description of both the podcast. Everyone, thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a good rest of your day. And goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. Sorry if this was super chaotic. It's Attila. What else would it be? It's all chaos.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.